I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's lovely to have you with us. And it's lovely, actually, to be back here in the Chatham House Media Studio. I imagine you will find the sound quality a bit more listenable than maybe some of our recent episodes where we've been on location. But I'm back from Glasgow this week, back from COP26, where I was spending a few days speaking to people, recording some interviews for this podcast and also for The Climate Briefing, another podcast from Chatham House that you should definitely check out. And we're back this week with some more climate change focused content. Obviously, we are very much towards the latter stages of COP26, of the summit itself, and a lot remains to be decided, but it's really uh, getting quite complicated now. (laughs) And everybody's sitting with bated breath, just waiting to see what document comes out at the end of this and what countries have managed to agree upon at this summit. We will be having in our next episode a kind of roundup of what happened at COP and some reaction from our Environment and Society programme. This week, though, I wanted to share some interviews that I conducted in Glasgow itself. So first off, you're going to hear from the journalist and author Simon Mundy, who is the moral money editor at the Financial Times. And we're talking about his new book, The Race for Tomorrow, which looks at how communities across the world are adapting to the climate crisis. That's then followed by two interviews that I conducted in the Green Zone at COP26, the civil society exhibition space where uh, a lot of people were mingling over the last week or so in Glasgow. And first off, you'll hear from Bella Watler, who is a youth activist from the Cayman Islands. And then you'll hear from Chloe Campbell, who is from a little closer to home. She's uh, a part of a movement called the 2050 Climate Group, which is a Scottish-based climate network fighting for climate justice around the world. I hope you enjoy those interviews and we'll be back later with a bit more info on what's coming up in the series. All right, so I've trekked out into the wildernesses of of southern Glasgow, which is actually very beautiful this morning, to come and speak to Simon Mundy. Simon is the moral money editor at the Financial Times and is author of Race for Tomorrow, Survival, Innovation and Profit on the Frontlines of the Climate Crisis, which was published this autumn by HarperCollins. Simon, great to meet you. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks so much for the invitation. So what brings you to Glasgow this week? What are you actually going to be doing here at COP? Yeah, so we have several reporters here at COP26. It's a big story for us. It's interesting for me, so I joined the FT in 2010. And then I think for every news organisation at that time, you know, we covered the environmental story, the climate story, considered it to be important. We're also conscious of the fact that most of our readers didn't consider it to be absolutely core to developments in the world economy and in global politics, and because uh, it wasn't at that time. Mm-hmm. But now it very much is. So this is a big, big story for the FT, as I think it is for every global news organization. What's interesting is, you know, we are, not entirely, but, you know, largely, we have a focus on business news. For business, there is no bigger area of coverage, no bigger issue for business at the moment than climate change, the energy transition. How do you get to net zero? Suddenly, compared with 10 years ago, 10 years ago, when I started my career, 
every business would probably they'd mention in their annual report somewhere on you know, page 274 we're doing this or that for environmental protection we've yeah. got a forestry project somewhere now you can bet the chairman's letter at the start of the annual report is saying we have a climate strategy this is what it's mm. going to look like mm. and they're under real press to show that mm. so we're interested in that so we're we're following of course we're following the negotiations between the governments which some people seem to have forgotten that this is actually, at its core, it's meant to be an intergovernmental <laughs> negotiation, not just a gathering of business people, which if you, if you looked at around Glasgow, you might think it was more the latter. Yeah. So my particular focus, so Moral Money is the FT's platform, looking at the flows of money around the sustainability of business, the environmental impact of mm-hmm. those flows of money, the social impact as well. So that's my particular focus. And so we, we have a, a newsletter twice weekly, as well as um, various other things that we do as part of the platform. And, you know, I write for other parts of the FT as well. So, so it's, so it's a great job, and it's it's an important subject mm. to be to be writing about, obviously. So at COP twenty six, I'm very interested in the conversations that are happening among business people, in particular, here at COP. I'm I, I'm speaking to various. I'm not only speaking to the business people, of course. There's a lot of business people here. Unlike any previous COP, I think, this is the first COP that I've been to, but I understand that you would not previously have got all these CEOs and chairmen of big companies coming in. Some people question whether that's a good thing, because accommodation, as I'm sure you know, in Glasgow has become astonishingly expensive. You know, it became a few weeks before, I think, a two-star rooms in a two-star hotel, a single room in a two-star hotel, £1,000 a night. Why is that? Because there's way more demand than supply for accommodation, so it goes to the people with the deepest pockets. Is that a good thing? When we're having a conversation that should be between multiple and diverse stakeholders on the future of the climate, Mm -hmm. and you end up with all but the very rich being priced out of the market, so you have people, I'm told you have people staying as far away as Newcastle and commuting Mm -hmm. into Glasgow for Mm -hmm. this, whereas the CEOs and chairman they've got a place to stay because they can pay whatever the going rate might be. So the, these are all some of the issues that I find really interesting. I mean, you're coming at this as a business journalist. You know, our fundamental purpose, I think, is to shine a light and shine some scrutiny on how these things work. And this is a, this is a good opportunity to do so. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I suppose it is that sort of paradox in a way between needing business people in the room because the private sector has to generate a lot of these solutions that we're talking about at COP, but also then the knock-on effects of, of what that means for the, <laughs> the culture and the, the inclusiveness of the discussion and all of that. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. Just before we talk about the book, just to pick you up on that sort of shift that you were talking about in the business world about attention on climate action. What do you think has driven that shift? Why do you think it has become such a priority for business? And cynical observers might think, you know, it's it's a question of corporate social responsibility. It's a question of PR in some way that these uh, big emitters need to be seen to be taking this seriously. But is that what you see? Or do you think actually it's a, it's a question of existential business <laughs> risk management? Or yeah, what's your thought on that? So it's a really good question. I think it'll be different for different businesses. Because, quite obviously, the, the shift towards net zero is much more difficult for some businesses than it is for others. Mm. In terms of the incentives that are pushing them, it's a really good question because there are various. So one is, the most obvious one perhaps, is there's no such thing as 
BP, for example. BP doesn't actually exist. It's a name that we give to a collection of people and contracts and assets, and it's a very complicated structure, and, and we call that BP. But BP actually, fundamentally, within that, there are human beings, the vast majority of whom are basically decent human beings, like mm. most of us are, who, who do care about who don't want to be on the wrong side of history. So I, think, I, I do think that's part of it. I think the vast majority of individuals within these companies do just think this this is important, as I think all of us do now. That's part of it. But you do have to look at the economic incentives. And that's where I get a bit worried. So I think at the moment, one thing that Paris in 2015 did was it made it, eventually, it sort of took some time for that to really feed through, but it, it sort of made it a bit unacceptable if you're a big company and you don't have a net zero target. Mm. then you're no longer welcome in polite society in, in business if you don't have that target. Yeah. Right? So everyone had the target. Because it simply became acknowledged as best practice to have a target. So the pressure is coming partly from investors. I think there's, there's a certain amount of future-proof going on. People see that there's a direction of travel. Mm. I think in many cases they are anticipating tighter and tighter government action, especially putting prices on carbon, so I think what's interesting for me is that currently, let, let's take an oil company like BP as an example. So currently BP has a big economic incentive in the short term to make money from oil and gas. Mm. From a, a pure economics perspective, obviously they have an incentive to do that. But from a strategic point of view, BP, and I think they are thinking about this, they're thinking under the current framework, yeah, you can make loads of money from oil and gas, but we can't rely on the current framework staying the same. It's quite possible that things like a serious carbon pricing system are going to come in and that will change the economic incentives. So and we don't want to be suddenly smashed to pieces when that change happens. We need to start moving now in anticipation of those changes. So yeah, and, and for various businesses, various businesses are under pressure from activists. So for example, one, one company I feature in the book, JBS in Brazil, is the, by far the biggest meat company. It's double the revenues of McDonald's, but because it's not sort of a consumer brand product, it's less high profile. Mm. So JBS, for example, they get a lot of pressure from activist groups, which put pressure on JBS's customers not to work with JBS. Mm. So, so there's that, that sort of incentives for some specific companies. Other companies, they are not being targeted by activists, but they're conscious of the companies that are and, and so on. So I think there's different incentives for different companies. But on the specific point of anticipating future regulation, there's also, I think, um, an incentive for companies, just an obvious incentive, and this is not to say anything about the ethics of the people who are working in there, but just in the sort of theoretical sense, obvious perspective, that the rules are going to be changing and you are a big, powerful company. You have an incentive to do everything you can to make sure those rules work really well for you. Mm. So one of the issues I have, and this goes back to the issue of the overwhelming presence of big business around COP26, and many people at COP26, many of these business people, they, they do actually, they've got passes to, to the actual event itself, or at least some parts of it, they are very well represented in some of these conversations that are happening about how do we move forward. Mm. And as we were discussing earlier in our private conversation, there's very few poor people at COP26. Very, very, very few. Mm. There are people from developing countries. They tend to be more prosperous people from developing countries. I think it's a very good thing that those people are here because otherwise it would just be people from developed countries, which would be even worse. But the fact is that most people in the world are poor by 
Western standards. A few thousand dollars a year or less, that's what most people in the world earn. They're very underrepresented because many people in those countries who I've spoken to, they don't feel their governments reflect the interests of that poor majority. So these are all tough questions to grapple with. But yeah, on the, on the business front, I think we should be asking questions about how strong the influence of businesses is mm. on the rules and frameworks that are taking shape around the new direction of the economy. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd like to come back to that a bit later. But as you brought up, people who can't attend COP, it's a good time to talk about your book because obviously the race for tomorrow is very much a, an attempt to kind of tell those stories in, in some ways. So could you tell us a bit about, yeah, what the kind of mission was behind behind this book? What were you seeking to do and, and uh, how did you go about doing it? Yeah, so one of the big reasons for writing the book was I felt that it could be useful to have a book on climate change that was driven by on-ground narrative Mm. reporting because a lot of people enjoy reading that. I really enjoy reading travel writing and on-ground reportage, narrative non-fiction. So I thought, why not try and do a book along those lines because I think there have been some really good books on climate change um, you know some of them have been sort of quite quite polemical blueprints for how to fix the problem some of them are more sort of scientific overviews and you know I've read a lot of them and, and some of them are really good but a lot of people are not quite being reached by those books a lot of people work really hard um, they have a lot of personal commitments and the idea of sitting down at the end of a long day and reading a book that's really heavy and potentially depressing is it's just not very appealing. And I think that's completely understandable. So I was really pleased to see GQ magazine, for example, describe this as a, a book that you, the first climate change book or, you know, a climate change book that you might want to read on the beach, which I was pleased to see because that's basically what I was going for. And I think it can be useful for people. This subject is so huge. I think so many people now feel that, as I mentioned in the book, this is the biggest story of the century. If you want to understand what's happening in the world around you, really got to understand what's happening with the climate crisis and the energy transition but where do you start i mean it's such a huge subject but i felt that if you could approach the subject through the stories of people who are involved in it and it's a really wide range of people in the book as you know it i spent time with herders in ethiopia i spent time with the energy minister of saudi arabia i spent time with billionaire tycoons in silicon valley and southern china uh, in, in the clean energy space, I spent time with illegal mammoth tusk hunters in Siberia. So it's a really wide range of of people. Um, but through these stories, I mean, none of them are just fun stories that are not relevant. All of them actually illustrate various important angles on the climate crisis and the energy transition. And I hope that people who have read the book will then find that all this blizzard of news about climate this and clean energy that and and so on, it just feels a bit less bewildering and you have certain points of reference that can be really useful moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, reading the book, it it is great, as you described, just for that kind of dipping in and out of you. You don't have to read it in a linear way, really. It's very episodic, which is something I really enjoyed about it. I I suppose what I was curious to know is, is kind of what, lessons you took away from all of those conversations in a sense I mean just on, on a few of the different areas that are such big topics at COP at the moment 
because in a way, I mean, although you say it's not a blueprint for climate action, it is quite solutions oriented, isn't it? It's, it's about the people who are trying to work out this on the front line <laughs> as climate impacts are kind of emerging. So what did you learn about how like innovation is driving this? Because, I mean, is it something, I suppose there's in a way, there's this kind of competing sort of narrative around, are we going to be able to regulate our way out of this crisis or are we going to have to create new technologies, new approaches to dealing with things? Do you see that new technology and, and these, this innovation emerging or do you think we're still sort of, yeah, still at a very early stage in that regard? Well, emerging is the word. Yeah. This is going to be really, really hard. If we are going to properly tackle the climate crisis, we, we have to fundamentally overhaul the economic system. Mm. And I don't think anything short of that is, is going to get us to net zero, is going to get us to a place where we are no longer on course for a real catastrophe. Got to overhaul the economic system, and that's really hard. And that's why there are some companies, I'm not going to point fingers, and particularly you can easily see who they are, that already claim to be net zero, or even, in at least one case, carbon negative. Mm-hmm. And I think this is dangerous, because I don't think it's really possible to be net zero in a really methodical way at the moment, because basically any company that says they're net zero now, what they mean is they've bought a lot of carbon offset certificates. Mm-hmm. And carbon offset certificates at the moment, it's a completely unregulated market. In many cases, you are funding a forest conservation project, and then they give you a, an offset certificate saying, we estimate, and it's uh, certified, you hopefully be certified by one of these bodies, that gives these certificates, but they're not regulated. We estimate that by funding this conservation project, X amount of this forest would probably have burned down if you hadn't funded this conservation project. So we estimate that you have thereby prevented the emission of whatever, 100 tonnes of carbon dioxide. And so for a few dollars per tonne, so for a few hundred dollars that would be, you get this certificate. Now, there are many people who say this is nonsense because it's not scientific you know probably we reckon that this might have burned down if you weren't doing this i think it's really great to fund forest conservation i don't want to see forests disappear i think everyone should if they want to fund forest conservation but don't use that as a license to pollute Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because that's actually when you think about it that's what these companies are doing they're saying we are net zero we pollute a lot but that's okay because we buy these offset certificates and it's a license to pollute and the really dangerous thing is because I don't think these offset certificates... Let's just say I have concerns about whether all these offset certificates, um, the, the projects behind them actually deliver the impact they claim. So what does that mean? It means that if every company does what these first movers, as they would call it, if every company does what they're doing, and if these certificates, these offset projects, don't have the claimed impact, then what does that mean? It means that you have a situation where on paper... Every company is net zero, and in practice, they keep on cooking the planet. So, so that's an example of where I think some people are not getting real about how difficult this is. People are acting as though we already have all the solutions. We don't have all the solutions, right? Mm. We're just getting started. That's why I'm, I find it difficult to see the mood among the sum of the people in Glasgow who are acting as though we're on track. 
We're not on track. We are so badly off track. We are on track for three degrees or more of global warming. And it's not clear how we, you know, two degrees, 1.5, it is utterly unclear how we would um, get there. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean we can't make a big difference to our current trajectory, but we are really on the wrong track and it's going to be difficult. Uh, so, so in my opinion, how we get there, I think you have to have a big element of carbon pricing, a dramatically expanded carbon pricing system. Why? Because at the moment you have an economic incentive to pollute. Mm. So you're putting... <laughs> I don't envy the heads of these big companies because they're in this impossible position where on the one hand they are supposed to generate profits for their shareholders and personally I'm fine with that because actually I think the market economy has lifted enormous numbers of people out of poverty all over the world I think you know I I want to have a market economy I think you know having corporations seems to be part of um, the system that works so that that's fine but the trouble is that you have the we're giving them these twin imperatives we're putting them in this pretty crazy position where we're saying make money for your shareholders but you've also got to make sure you're not destroying the planet and it's not entirely clear what, how you should measure that and just try and be nice. Try and make money, but also be nice. Mm. You know, I mean, so, so it's, it's, all, it's, it's, it's a mess. Whereas you put a really sweeping price on carbon, a comprehensive price on carbon, it's going to be difficult because for one thing, you put a, it, it would be a carbon tax, uh, almost certainly. Now, how do you assess the carbon tax on a coffee cup, for example? It's difficult. It's not impossible, right? And you might you might not be able to get a very very exact number, but I think you can get a number that is fit for purpose for every good and service, like we do with the inflation number, right? This inflation number that we get to one decimal place. I mean, it's it's an estimate, but it's an estimate that is close enough to be very very useful to economists, to, to government officials, and business people, and so on. So we can absolutely do that. You know, I was on a panel discussion on Monday here in Glasgow. And I mentioned this argument and I said, it seems to me, not because I'm an expert, but because I'm fortunate enough to be able to speak to people who are experts mm-hmm. and I can listen to them and hear what they think and get a sense of what makes sense. It seems to me international carbon pricing system with a big component of additional support for developing countries like India, for example, who would be potentially hit hard by a move to that regime. That's the system that we need. And, the, and someone else on the panel said, oh yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> like that's ever going to happen well why the hell not mm. right I mean various other political things politically impossible things have happened female suffrage was politically impossible until it happened an end of apartheid in South Africa was politically impossible until it happened so we've done all sorts of politically impossible things putting a price on carbon are you seriously telling me that is beyond the realm of human capability well obviously not right it's just do we actually want to do it and are we actually going to work really, really hard to make it happen? You know, that, I think, is going to be the single most important thing in changing the system that we have because then you remove the economic incentive to destroy the planet and then you can just say to companies, look, just get back to what you were doing, try and generate profit while abiding by all the rules and laws and regulations and it's fine because the laws and regulations are now fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You said just there, you know, we've got to reshape our our economy kind of fundamentally. But but what do you say to people who take that a step further and and, and say, you know, the actual problem is the economy itself, and and the market economy has has been such a, a large source of emissions as as much as it has allowed economic development and taken countless people out of poverty it's done so at a serious cost to the planet and actually the problem that we need to grapple with more fundamentally is a commitment to growth do you think that from your research in this book and talking to all of these people do you think that that uh, green growth which seems to be such a big agenda item at COP is very much this sort of sanctioned language in a way for, for bringing this coalition together do you think that is compatible with actually fixing the climate crisis? That's a really important question. So I think there are certain concepts that we always sort of bundle together. And one of them is market economy and growth. Mm. I don't think, you know, it's a really interesting point. It's something that I want to study further. I don't think you have, just because you have a market economy, it doesn't mean you have to have a focus on growth. I think, you, I think it's possible to imagine an ex-growth market economy. Because the market economy is simply, there's always got to be rules and regulations. You know, you have some people who say, oh, I believe in the free market. But what is the free market? I mean, like any market exists with rules and regulations. Otherwise, you have anarchy. Otherwise, you have certain areas of rural Somalia or something like, you know, some dystopian movie, right? I mean, market economy requires governments setting the rules. So I think in terms of growth, it's a really, really interesting question. Because I think you can make a case that... A country like the UK, for example, you can, you, can, you can definitely make a case that we don't need a bigger economy mm. in the UK. I think you, you would need to admit that we need more equitable distribution of what we have. But I think you could make a case that for a country like the UK, the economy itself doesn't need to be bigger. Yeah. It's much more difficult to make that argument for you know, a lot of the countries that I visited for the book or India where I lived previously. You know, I mean... There are many hundreds of millions of people who live on very, very low incomes. And without economic growth, they stay poor. So from that point of view, I think the, the growth conversation, I think is really important. I think, you know, there's a great comment. What is it? It's something like growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell, right? <laughs> and that's a powerful quote. I forget who, who said that. So growth cannot be for the sake of growth. But if you're talking about growth in India or in Congo um, or in you know, any country where most people are very poor, then it's not growth for the sake of growth. It's, it's growth ideally for the sake of reducing poverty. But these are tough conversations, right? And I think it's important yeah. to have them. And I, <laughs> I keep on saying that. I don't know any of the answers, really. It's not really my job fundamentally to have the answers as a reporter. My job is more to ask questions and try to make sense of the answers that I hear. And in some cases, you know, to ask questions that aren't getting asked enough, I think. But I think, you know, the question that you, that you just raised yourself, I think, is one of those questions. You know, do we have too much focus on growth, especially in the developed countries where the need for growth is less obvious than it is in some very poor countries. It's just an important conversation to be having. And I, I just feel that sometimes, and including in some discussions at COP26, some of these tough questions are ducked for the sake of politeness and not making people uncomfortable. And I, I don't think we have time for that. You know, 
any big issue that is important. We just got to talk about it, frankly. That is true. No, I I just wanted to end just by asking a question a bit about. Um, you've already mentioned that there are people who you think are sort of marginalised from the COP process for whom you know they can't access these conversations and how really we should be doing more to try and make sure that they can. But thinking back to some of the people that you met in the book, you know, the mammoth tusk trader in, in Siberia who is actually finding a new livelihood from the effects of permafrost melting, those sorts of things. Do, do you think when you're having those conversations with people, did you find that, that climate change was sort of front and centre of things that they were worried about. <laughs> and and how, I suppose, how do you sort of draw these communities who are out there just trying to make a living, survive in, the, in these countries, how do you draw them closer to this conversation, this sort of multilateral, high-level, governmental conversation of the sort that we're seeing in COP26? How do you make the two constituencies kind of relevant to each other? Again, there's no easy answers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing... I'm thinking about it a lot and, and, and trying to do certain things that I can do. So the book is one of them, obviously. Mm. You know, the book is presenting voices of, of people who, you know, certain individual voices that have not previously been heard and certain sorts of voices that just haven't in general been heard from enough um, and trying to treat all of the people in the book not as just people that you get a soundbite from, but actually this is a human being and this is their story. Um, and to do that, obviously, I had to spend time with these people, which is often difficult to do as a reporter. This is one of the great, you know, I, I was privileged that I was able to spend two years working full-time on this book and more time working part-time on it. But the, the, two, the two years of full-time travel, I mean, that, that's an incredible privilege. Like, most people can't do that, and I'm very conscious of that. So for me, it was about, like, I'm in this privileged position. I want to make the most of it. And so that enabled me, instead of just zipping in and out things that I've done in the past for a newspaper article I arrive in a village I speak to a few people and then I leave because yeah. I'm on deadline mm. that, that sort of thing um, whereas with this I would get to the village and I would stay there perhaps for a week or, or, or longer and just get to know everyone and just get a really deep sense for the story but uh, yeah I mean the, the issue of representation so one thing that I try and I'm, I'm very conscious that as a sort of posh white male I'm part of an overrepresented group Right, and so, so when I get invited to do talks, it's that's something that I feel uncomfortable with because here I am saying that you know non-white people from the developing world are underrepresented, and then here I am as a privileged white male from the UK who does get a platform. So what I try to do is <laughs> sometimes I just sort of hijack the event, <laughs> and you know, for example, this week a couple of times I played a video of um, someone that I met and included in the book. So she's a a typhoon survivor from the Philippines. And she, um, this is another constituency that is underrepresented. You know, people have really survived at first hand the impacts of climate change. They are, because there are many of them, and they are certainly underrepresented at COP26. And I've done it a couple of times, and I think I'm going to keep doing it right at the very start of the conversation. Just play the video of her mm. telling her story of how almost her entire family was, was killed by Typhoon Haiyan, her parents, her three-year-old nephew, her big brother. She's not shouting. She's just saying what happened and in very clear and measured tones, just talking about how she feels about that. And I play that at the start of the conversation often because you can sort of walk into a room and everyone's there for a good time. Yeah. And I'm all about having a good time sometimes. <laughs> 
But I don't think anyone should really come to COP26 for a good time. Mm. And I think some people have. So, so this is an example of where I try to do what I can do with my, the opportunities that I have to share those voices. So I may be a white male, but <laughs> at least I can you know, force people to sit there and listen to the voice of, of someone else who they wouldn't normally go to hear from. Uh, in terms of what the organisers of things like COP26 can do and the organisers of other, other events can do, isn't that amazing that everyone's now using video technology, video call technology? You know, it's existed for years, as you know, but no one really used it before the pandemic. Now everyone knows how to use it. Mm. And the great thing about that is that there are many people around the world who would be happy to take part in some event uh, appearing by video link. They may or may not speak good English. You know, you may or may not need to have an interpreter, but they can, they can be with you by video link. Yeah. You know, so things like that, you know, people say, oh, it's difficult to just fly people all over the place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But actually, video link technology is, is pretty good. In a lot of developing countries, actually, embarrassingly, often the internet is much better in some of these countries than it is in the UK. That's a whole other thing that we could, I, I don't know why that is. But, um, but they, can, they can be with you if people just think more, more carefully about that. So, yeah, of course, you know, it's great for me that, that people want to hear me talking, but... There's, there's also a lot of opportunities to bring in uh, those voices mm-hmm. from around the world thanks to this technology that now... And, the, and it wasn't the case in the past, right? Because, you know, now, for example, in poor countries, there is really good internet connection. You know, everywhere I went, Bangladesh, Congo, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's good internet connection now available. And even if the person doesn't themselves have internet access, there'll definitely be a place near them where you could, you, you, you could help them to, to find the, the place with the connection. They can go to the local five-star hotel and you can cover the cost or whatever. As the organizer of an event in, in a rich country, you can, um, you can do these things now. And I think that's brilliant. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there to just bring those people into the conversation, have their voices heard at the tables where these big decisions are being made because like I say you know this is most of the world most of the world lives in developing countries most of the world is on a few thousand dollars a year or less and I just think you know we all need to be thinking about how to address this problem that we have with the sort of underrepresentation of those voices absolutely no uh, Simon thanks so much for joining me today and uh, good luck with asking the tough questions um, and bringing down all the fun <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's definitely I'm all about the fun um, when it's the time and the place yeah. thank you so much and no, I really enjoyed thank it you. thank, thank you. you all right so now I'm joined we found a little corner away from the main green zone part of the conference and I'm joined now by Bella Wattler who is from a youth network called Protect Our Future, uh, which is based in the Cayman Islands. Bella, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you enjoying COP26 so far? It's been amazing so far. I've been able to really learn a whole lot about different avenues for pursuing climate action and been exposed to some really cool projects and people from all over. And tell me a bit about Protect Our Future. What's What does that involve? What What's your work in that? So Protect Our Future is one of our youth-led environmental organizations in the Cayman Islands, and it's a collaboration of different groups of people from different backgrounds and different age groups around the island, and we work to pursue different environmental issues around the island and work towards climate change as well. We do a lot of social media-based outreach and um, promotion through different platforms, And we also do education and working with 
meeting with some of our political leaders to enact some policy that we would like to see taken around the island. Yeah. So what what are the big challenges facing the Cayman Islands in terms of environmental policy? What have you been trying to push for? So one of the big environmental issues that we face in the Cayman Islands is overdevelopment. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of mangrove ecosystems around the island and often they're ripped out for these massive development projects and a lot of people now are asking who are we developing for like is this really benefiting our future generations and the Caymanians or is this what's the point of this development is this the direction that we really want to be taking so development is definitely a big one we've also seen We focus a lot on marine ecosystems as we're an island, so a lot of people are connected with the ocean in that sense. So anything from plastic pollution to coral bleaching, we recently faced um, stony coral tissue loss disease, which spread around the island. So working to educate people on what that is and how to stop the spread of it. I would say those are some of the main ones. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And uh, we're here on Youth Day at COP26, which in theory is all about how we uh, how we get young people more engaged with the UN process on on climate action. Do you feel in the Cayman Islands that the the politicians that make the decisions, do you feel like they are receptive to what young people think and your priorities? Yeah, I think in the Cayman Islands we have a really unique interaction because we're so small we can actually youth can have conversations and sit down with the politicians and that's not something that happens in most places around the world so we're really lucky in that sense and we get to have these dialogues with our politicians I think that we're still working on making sure that those dialogues get put into action and we have definitely had a strong presence in the past pushing on some of these issues that we've been working with but I think we still have a lot of room to grow in in that sense. What have you been up to this week then at COP26? What's been the kind of highlights? Uh, I've been attending a lot of different presentations and trying to increase my exposure to different sorts of avenues. I've gone to presentations on peatlands and conservation in that aspect, climate heritage action, nature-based solutions, trying to diversify and like broaden my perspective on what we could be doing and what's out there in terms of climate action and trying to apply that and bring it back to Cayman and trying to see what we could take from this and um, what could work there. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're here, am I right, as part of a group of conservation activists and, and networks um, that have been brought together by the National Trust. Could you tell us a bit about, you know, that sort of collaboration? So we've been invited to attend COP by the International National Trust Organization. So within the Cayman Islands, we've been involved in a lot of these different aspects of activism in collaboration with the National Trust of the Cayman Islands. So we were able to make that connection and Miss Kathy's been amazing at helping us coordinate that and make sure that the youth get exposure to these events and making sure that we can sort of grow as individuals who are interested in pursuing climate action. So the future generations that are pursuing climate action in the future can really have a strong sense of direction. Yeah, for sure. Well, good luck with the rest of the conference and thanks so much for talking to me today. Yes, thank you so much.
Okay, so I'm back in the green zone here at the Glasgow Science Centre and I'm joined now by Chloe Campbell from the 2050 Climate Group. Chloe is 24 years old, uh, she's an operational volunteer with the 2050 Climate Group and she's the chair of their summit team, which is the network that organises their annual youth summit. Chloe, thanks so much for joining me on Youth Day at COP26. Great, thank you for having me. Um, so could you tell us a bit, just to start off with, about the 2050 Climate Group, like what, what are you guys up to? Yeah, of course. So we are a volunteer-driven, um, youth-run charity. We were established in 2014 and essentially we exist to um, empower young people to influence climate-related decisions, get involved in climate action, sort of equip people with the knowledge to be able to um, transition into leadership positions. That's amazing. I mean, it sounds like such great work. What's your take on you know how we can get young people more embedded in the kind of the political and, and the, the policy negotiations that are going on this week because I, I mean obviously no one is doubting the commitment of young people to climate action like very much they're there at the forefront of these movements calling for change I mean even today we've got 10,000 young people as we speak walking across Glasgow to demonstrate that sense of urgency and the emotion around it but how do you then sort of translate that further into sort of meaningful policy change? How, how are you getting young people involved in the conversations that are going to make a difference? Yeah, I think that that's a really important question because, of course, um, you know, young people, young people are on the lips of all sort of leaders and decision makers. And from the sounds of it, from sort of panels and negotiations, it sounds as though young people at the forefront of everybody's minds, but I'm not sure that's translating into reality. So I think that for our perspective, the 2050s perspective and my perspective, it's important that um, people in leadership positions start um, essentially incorporating young people um, in those leadership positions. So understanding that our expertise and lived experience is valid and necessary in the climate sort of the transition to a just and sustainable future. So starting to include, for example, at 2050 Climate Group, we have a purely um, a board of trustees that is made up purely of young people. So perhaps incorporating young people's experiences into boards of trustees, making sure that young people are re represented um, sort of decision-making boards essentially, making sure that our views are not tokenised and that although when you talk about young people in your decisions, that you've got a young person in the room saying, yes, this is important in driving those um, lived experiences forward. And also that people in leadership positions are representing the diversity of youth experience, that you know you're not having one youth perspective um, on your team, that you're having multiple, and that the representative of all the different lived experiences that are, are happening right now. You know, if you're working in local government, making sure that they represent um, the local population, but particularly in a global sense, making sure, and as we've seen with all of our incredible youth activists out here, the diversity um, that is there, making sure that that is, that is represented. Yeah, no, for sure. Now, thinking geographically, sort of obviously your network's very much sort of based in Scotland, what are the kind of big issues on the climate agenda that your network's sort of working on as it relates to kind of Scotland itself specifically? Yeah, so I think for us as Scotland specifically, it's making sure that climate justice is at the centre of all sort of decision making moving forward. Um, and climate justice, of course, has been a big global talking point because the um, climate change and the climate crisis is um, unjust and it's unequitable and it's affecting people in frontline communities disproportionately. But it's also important to recognise 
that the climate crisis is affecting people in Scotland disproportionately as well and that is an issue of racism and classism and of gender violence and that is something that is at the forefront of our minds in Scotland also is understanding that when we're talking about taking action we're taking everybody in Scotland along with us that we're not all experiencing this crisis in the same way even within our local areas so locally regionally and nationally we need to understand that you know climate justice means social justice and that we need to be tackling these key root causes of injustices before we can transition into our just and sustainable society that we're all aiming for. So really at 2050 Climate Group that is at the forefront of our work always is making sure that social injustices are being tackled which will hopefully start to tackle climate injustices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for putting that out there. So then just finally, what, what are you going to be doing at COP26 over the next sort of week and a half? What's on the agenda for 2050 Climate Group? Yeah, so we actually already have a group of eight delegates in the Blue Zone who have been participating in panels and um, sort of trying to represent young people's views um, it's been difficult you know NGO um, and observers have been shut out of negotiations which has um, been a, re- a real challenge I'm sure for um, everybody who is representing um, the third sector and, and NGOs and sort of civil society voices but we have our eight delegates in the Blue Zone and we have eight delegates next week in the Blue Zone also and today so today the 5th of November on Youth Day at COP26 and we are hosting an event in the Green Zone. It's a one-hour talk um, hosted with our sister um, charity in Malawi, the Malawi Climate Leaders Network. We'll be talking about the value of youth global participation and partnership, how we can information share and strengthen climate solutions through this global partnership, and also um, talking about our visions of the future, how we're going to get to 2050, what what that will look like. So very exciting. We're all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining me and and taking some time out of your busy schedule. Uh, Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the end, if you're here. Make sure that you check out Simon Mundy's book, The Race for Tomorrow, which is available wherever you buy your books. Heartily recommend it. It's a really, really good read. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews for you, including some reaction from COP26, but then I promise we will be moving on from climate change. It feels like I've been talking about climate change for a very long time at this point. (laughs) But we have a few more episodes lined up before Christmas, so we're looking forward to bringing those to you. In the meantime, if you want to catch up with the rest of Chatham House's work, the best way to do that is to follow us on Twitter at Chatham House or visit our website, www.chathamhouse.org. If you ever have any feedback on the series or if there are topics that you think we should be covering, which we haven't covered in the past, please do get in touch with me. I'm available to email at bhorton at chathamhouse.org. Likewise, if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, we would really, really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on whichever podcast app you're using and subscribe to our feed because that makes it easier for other people to discover the podcast. As I said, we'll be back soon with some new interviews for you. Till then, thanks very much for joining us.